Okay. Well, we're in trouble because I've got a bazillion slides to cover and we're already 10 minutes late. So, how about I open us real quick with prayer and then we'll see how far we can get. Gracious Father, we do thank you for this day and thank you so much for your love and care for us. We truly are grateful, Father, that we can be here this morning, um, that we can fellowship with one another, we can gather together to praise your name, to lift our petitions, and to study your word. I ask, Father, that in this hour you would, uh, through your spirit, that you would uh, shed light in our hearts and uh, reveal to us something new, uh, useful, and effective for our continuing sanctification. Please protect us from error. Um, Use it, O Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Uh, so uh, one of the... The struggles that I felt like we've kind of had going along here is that I'm still wondering if we have a really good grasp of what conscience really is. Um, I personally am struggling with, they, they talk about it a lot in terms of what it looks like, but they really, we really haven't sat down and seemingly really, I, you know, I defined and... Um, Explained what is the conscience. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to successfully do that today at all. But in my quest for that, I ran across an article out on monergism by J.I. Packer. And let's see, i got to get myself. Um, called The Puritan Conscience, of all things. And uh, it's a great article. I would recommend that if you can, going out, look, Googling it, just Google the Puritan conscience. It'll come up. It's one of the top uh, opportunities, and take a look at it. Uh, it's kind of long, as Internet articles go, but it's well worth the read. So much worth the read, in fact, that uh, I'm going to read portions of it to you this morning. I realize that somebody standing up here and reading something to you is a bit boring, but this is... There's such good stuff in here, I think that it's worth, worth the effort. So we'll start with this, this just from the very start here. Oh, well, not exactly. The concern which, really, which was really supreme in the minds and hearts of the people called Puritans was a concern about God, a concern to know Him truly and serve Him rightly, and so to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. But just because this was so, they were in fact very deeply concerned about conscience. For they held that conscience was the mental organ in men through which God brought His word to bear on them. Nothing, therefore, in their estimation was more important for any man than that his conscience should be enlightened, instructed, purged, and kept clean. To them there could be no real spiritual understanding or any genuine godliness 
except as men exposed and enslaved their consciences to God's word. Interesting idea, mental organ. The conscience is a mental organ. In saying this, the Puritans were doing no more than maintain an emphasis which went back to the first days of the Reformation. So Packer is arguing that the Puritans simply built on top of the Reformation. And what we're fixing to read here is a little bit about the Reformation. One thinks, for example, of Luther's momentous words at Worms. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture and by clear reason, for I do not trust either in Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and uh, contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. One thinks, too, of the famous sentence about the doctrine of justification in chapter 20 of the Augsburg Confession in 1530. This whole doctrine must be related to that conflict of a terrified conscience, Latin, and without that conflict, it cannot be understood. Statements like this make plain the centrality of conscience and the Reformer's understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. Conscience signified to them a man's knowledge of himself as standing in God's presence, quorum Deo in Luther's phrase, subject to God's word and exposed to the judgment of God's law. And yet, if a believer justified and accepted nonetheless through divine grace... So by impl- this, notice here that these th- three themes are applied to both believer and non-believer, whether they know it or not. Okay? A man's knowledge of himself as standing in God's presence, whether he acknowledges God is, is, exists or not. Subject to God's word, subject to God's law and exposed to the judgment of God's law. Conscience was the court forum in which God's justifying sentence was spoken. Conscience was the soil in which alone true faith, hope, peace, and joy could grow. Conscience was the facet of the much-defaced image of God in which man was made. And vital Christianity... The Christian religion of which Calvin wrote in the Institutes was rooted directly in the apprehensions and exercises of conscience under the searching address of God's quick and powerful word and the enlightenment of His Holy Spirit. I don't know what I'm doing here. So the Reformers held and the Puritans too. But where do we find such emphasis today? The frightening fact is that at present, present, 
this note is scarcely ever struck. In Western society as a whole, conscience is in decay. Apostasy has set in, and hence, as always, moral standards are failing. Anybody want to argue with that? In the Christian church, consciences should be sharp and alert, but are they? It is to be feared that we whom Christ calls to be the salt of the earth have lost much of our proper savor. Are evangelicals noted these days for goodness and integrity? Are we distinguished in society for sensitiveness to moral issues and compassion towards those in need? Do our preachers, earnest and eloquent as they may be, win for themselves the name that God gave Noah, a preacher of righteousness? Once the so-called nonconformist conscience meant something in national life, but does it mean anything now? Once Christians were taught to commune with their consciences daily, in the regular discipline of self-examination under the Word of God. But how much of this remains today? Do we not constantly give evidence of our neglect of this secret discipline by unprincipled and irresponsible public conduct? We profess our anxiety to keep clear of legalistic bondage, but are we not in much greater danger of Arminian license? We rightly repudiate the common view that doctrine does not matter so long as one is upright in life. But if we let our reaction drive us into the opposite extreme of supposing that one's life does not matter so long as one is sound, a good Calvinist, we say, then the beam in our own eye will be worse than the mote in our brother's. A study of the Puritan conscience, therefore, may well be bracing and salutary for us at this present time. Okay, now we're going to look at something of what the Puritans actually said about the conscience. All Puritan theologians from Perkins are agreed in conceiving of conscience as a rational faculty a power of moral self-knowledge and judgment, dealing with questions of right and wrong, duty and desert, and dealing with them authoritatively as God's voice. Often the Puritans appeal to the form of the word conscience from the Latin consentia as pointing to the fact that the knowledge which conscience possesses is shared knowledge, joint knowledge, Knowledge, sentia, held in common with, con, another, namely God. The judgments of conscience thus express the deepest and finest knowledge that a man ever has, knowledge of himself as God knows him. Might ponder that a little bit. When Ames starts his textbook on conscience and casuistry by reproducing Aquinas' definition of conscience as a man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God of himself, and variants of this definition often appear in Puritan writings, 
Ames appeals to Isaiah 5.3 and 1 Corinthians 11.3 as affording biblical basis. The Edinburgh professor David Dickinson gives further, fuller analysis along the same lines as follows. Conscience, as it doth respect ourselves, is the understanding power of our souls examining how matters do stand betwixt God and us. Comparing his will revealed with our state, condition, and carriage in thoughts, words, or deeds done or omitted, and passing judgment thereupon as the case requires. It is a universal experience that conscience is largely autonomous in its operation. Though sometimes we can suppress or stifle it, it normally speaks independently of our will and sometimes, indeed, contrary to our will. And when it speaks, it is in a strange way distinct from us. It stands over us, addressing us with an absoluteness of authority which we did not give it and which we cannot take from it. To personify conscience and to treat it as God's watchman and spokesman in the soul is not, therefore, mere flight of fancy, it is a necessity of human experience. So then, when the Puritans call conscience God's deputy and vice regent within us, God's spy in our bosoms, God's sergeant which he employs to arrest the sinner, we must not dismiss these ideas as just quaint fancies. They represent a serious attempt to do justice to the biblical conception of conscience which every man's experience reflects, namely, the conception of conscience as a witness declaring facts, a mentor prohibiting evil, and a judge assessing desert. Such passages amplify warrant of the Puritan conception of conscience as the faculty which God put in man to be the sounding board for his word its application to our lives, or changing the metaphor, a mirror to catch the light of moral and spiritual truth that shines forth from God and to reflect it in concentrated forms upon our deeds, desires, goals, and choices. The Puritans are simply following the Bible when they depict conscience in this fashion as God's monitor of the soul. So some questions. Let me get caught up here. Are you prepared to quit your job or be fired for the sake of your conscience? And before you answer yes, because I'm really quick to answer this question, yes, I want you to stop and think about it. Because, in fact, I think it is far more easily to say our conscience is wrong and to find a way around than actually own up to some of the things that we get confronted with. And I believe it's going to become more pressing in the years to come. Would you give up your business for the sake of your conscience? What if the government forces you to provide health benefits to your employees that includes 
paying for abortion causing contraception. Case in point, it would be very easy for a business owner, and I have once owned a business, it would be very easy for me to find a way to excuse this. It's not me doing it. Okay? What if you're required to provide creative services endorsing the same-sex relationship just like heterosexual relationships? And we are already seeing people confronted with this question today. We only hear about the ones where someone says, my conscience is being violated and I will obey it. We're not hearing about the thousands where the conscience might be being violated, but we are not obeying it. Are you prepared to go to jail for the sake of your conscience? What if the government establishes a law making statements that homosexuality and same-sex marriage are sins, a hate speech crime? Anybody want to argue that this isn't a real possibility in the near future? We're going to be confronted with this. What is our conscience going to tell us and what are we going to do? What if the government makes it a crime for pastors to refuse wedding services to same-sex couples? I mean, it's very easy to conceive that these things are going to happen to us. Now let's take a case example, case study. Here's a guy. All he was trying to do is personally reconcile his sense of guilt with what the Bible says about redemption. And he came to a realization that it wasn't about what he did, but it was about what God did. It was fantastic news, and so he went and he put some 95 theses on a, on a wall. And what did it get him? It got him in front of a religious court. It was a personal matter, frankly. It, I mean, you know, was it really that big a deal? But he's in front of this court now, and all of a sudden he's being asked on pain of his life to recant from one simple thing, that God's justification is from God alone. All he had to do was recant. What big deal was it going to make in the world at large if he did? And what is the precedent that stands in front of this man as he stands in front of that court? The precedent is John Huss, who was burned at the stake for similar things. The precedent is Wycliffe, who was burned at the stake for similar stance. He stood there, one man, all by himself. 
How easy would it have been to say, I recant. Make it a publicly, public recantation and go on with his personal walk with the Lord. He had that choice. He could have done that. I would have done that. He did not. Because he understood something. And this is what he said. We've heard it from Packer, but I'm going to read it one more time. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in popes or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. He just signed his death warrant. And he knows it. May God help me. Now we stand on the other side of that history. And we know what an amazing thing God did through those events. In fact... It is what gives us hope today. God did it then. Someday, hopefully, he'll do it again. But it took a man. Captive to his conscience. That God used to make it so. This is not a trivial study. This is something that I believe we have lost in our society today because the Puritan conscience, the Puritan conscience so affected the life of man that we have spent two centuries divorcing ourselves from it, getting ourselves away from it as individuals, and as a society. And today, we really give it little attention, if any, at all. And Packer's right. Okay, so in our book, we learned the two great principles of conscience, okay? One is, God is the only Lord of conscience. And the second one is, you should always obey your conscience. Oh, by the way, the topic today is, how should you calibrate your conscience? (laughs) Sorry, got wound up on my sermon and forgot to (laughs) let you know. Okay, so anyway, um, 
so okay, so how to how do you cal- calibrate your constants? So the two principles, and we learned that from the chapter one, I believe God is the only Lord of the conscience. And you should always obey your conscience. And we've just looked at a case study of why that's so. Okay? All right. There's a third one that they add in this chapter, which they don't really call it the third great principle, but I'm going to do it. You should maintain a good conscience, even if it means you'll suffer prison or death. It's that important. Okay? That's a pretty big statement there, folks. But it was that important for us in Martin Luther's case. It's that important for us. Okay? Therefore, it's important to know how your conscience works and how to calibrate, validate, and adjust your conscience. No. Oh yeah. So no. Also wanted to note that maintain this. This you should re- maintain a good conscience. This is uh, is maintain is not the same as obey. Maintain includes more than just obedience. I would say that maintain does include obedience, such as, but it also includes things like using scripture coupled with reason to inform it, and the Holy Spirit. Should you listen to your conscience? We're just going through the book now. Two analogies. When your conscience speaks, don't turn it off. Okay, and he, they, they take a, an, a story that Mark MacArthur, John MacArthur gives in which there was an airplane in Spain. And it was flying in the clouds and, uh, and the warning system started going off. And the warning system, it was an American, I guess it was a Boeing air, uh, aircraft because the warning systems kept saying, pull up, pull up. And this, the Spanish pilot said, shut up, or I probably said, callete, gringo, and turned it off. And the airplane slammed into a side of a, of a, a mountain, killing all on board. Okay. The conscience is generally seen by the modern world as a defect that robs people of their self-esteem. Far from being a defect or a disorder, however, our ability to sense our own guilt is a tremendous gift from God. It is the automatic warning system that tells us, pull up, pull up before we crash and burn. Jonathan Edwards says, the way to keep the conscience tender is to the utmost resist sin. Okay, our second analogy. When your conscience repeatedly warns you, best to deal with it immediately. And in this example, how many of you guys have ever driven a car that had a little warning light that said check engine or engine check? How many of you guys ever did anything about that little yellow lights on your dashboard? Huh? Well, I, I've done something. I've taken it into the garage and found out it's going to cost me $600 to fix it, and it really doesn't matter that much, and turned right around and walked back out. 
But that's the most extent I've ever done about that check engine light. Well, what if that check engine light one day went off for something that was pretty important? But because you've grown used to ignoring it, you don't take it, pay any heed. That $600 now is going to be a $6,000 bill, right? Or maybe more. Ignoring the warning lights of the conscience can put us in the same dangerous position, which is why it's best to address issues of conscience directly and not hope they just go away. <laughs> in fact, that pathway leads to the most satisfying experience in this world. As one New Testament scholar observes, the possession of a good conscience is the best pillow for enjoying a peaceful Christian life. It was by I. Howard Marshall. We want a conscience that is good, blameless, clear, clean, and pure. Should you listen to your conscience? So the answer is yes. And by use of analogy, we are given two principles. When your conscience speaks, listen to it. Don't turn it off. When your conscience repeatedly warns, best to deal with it immediately. But this doesn't really tell us why. So here are some of my thoughts on the subject. Why should we listen to our conscience? Well, number one, let's remember the source. It is created by God. It is part of God's image in man. And it was created and given to man prior to the fall. And it exists in every man. Why did God do that? I believe it is part of God's common grace that He put a conscience in every man in order that civil society might exist. Without the conscience, there could be no such thing. Not only did he create a conscience in man, but he informed that conscience with his law. He wrote it on our hearts. Okay? And its purpose requires it. It is God's common grace to all men, providing a restraining force that keeps men from always being as bad as they can be, to guide us in choosing right and avoiding wrong, to monitor, witness, and judge our actions and provide us feedback based upon the findings. Okay. So, I, there's going to be, this week, they went to Romans 14. Next week, we'll also be looking at Romans 14. So, I decided, well, probably we should just go right ahead and we should read Romans 14. So, let's read Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, 
And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Should, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes peace for mutual upbuilding. There's so much in this passage. You know, this primary focus is upon unity. But notice, it also is it is talking about that unity in the context of a stronger and a weaker brother. What is, a, what is the stronger brother? Well, the stronger brother is the brother whose theology probably better reflects what God is and is not concerned about. The weaker brother is still caught up in some things, some matters of convention, some matters of culture, but his conscience tells him it is wrong. Okay? Notice that Paul doesn't find fault with that. And Paul does not commend the stronger brothers for their better theology. The implication here is that both the strong and the weak brother can please God in their walk. 
And what is the determining factor in that pleasing of God? That they each obey their conscience. Now, for the theologically strong brother, there is a there is a, the concept of love that takes precedent over the fact that his conscience tells him it is not sin to eat meat. And that is what his conscience will obey if he wishes to please God. And the weaker brother, he will not eat meat because his conscience tells him it's wrong. Do not fear for the sake of food. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. A clean conscience is the best pillow. How reliable is your conscience? Well, I think we basically can say, based upon Romans 14, that your conscience can tell you things that are not necessarily part of the law of God and the will of God. And obedience to those things is not necessarily obedience to God's will. Except that you should obey your conscience. But the answer is your conscience is generally reliable. And I think we can, we, we can say that uh, based upon the fact that, again, it's source... And its purpose. Therefore, you should generally follow your conscience. This is especially true for Christians who have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to apply it. God did not give man a conscience so that he would disregard or distrust it. It is not hopeless, it is not a hopelessly faulty instrument, but it is an instrument that does need regular calibration. Your conscience is not identical to the voice of God. That voice inside your head is not necessarily what God would say. So how do you cultivate a conscience that aligns with God's voice? Is your conscience theologically correct? And we can answer that from Romans the 14 pass the Romans 14 passage. And they break it down this way. There are four, three different issues that Paul deals with in that passage. There's food, there's holy days, and there's wine. Uh, the strong, they eat all kinds of food. 
They make no distinction among days. And they'll drink wine. The weak, well, they're concerned about where that meat came from. And they really don't want to eat any meat that comes f that's been sacrificed to idols. So they eat only vegetables. They value some days more than others. There are some days, and there were days in, in the Old Testament that were far more important than other days. Why would we change that? And they would abstain from wine because we do know that we should never we should avoid drunkenness, right? So why even risk it? Some people were more theologically sound in their thinking than others. Paul does not encourage the theologically weaker to fix their theology. He tells them to obey their conscience. The theologically strong do not necessarily please God more than the theologically weak. Two more analogies. The conscience as an instrument. Aligning an instrument with a standard to calibrating an instrument is aligning uh, an instrument with a standard to ensure that it is functioning accurately. In some cases, when you're trying to calibrate a, an instrument, you turn it to the left to take a little off, right? In other case, times, to calibrate an instrument, you turn it to the right and add something, okay? You decrease or increase its sensitivity. Or a garden created by, beautiful by God, but in the process of growing up in your culture and your family, your church, weeds sneak into the garden that don't belong there. And some plants that do, that do belong there end up dying. And then they said, consider the example of Paul. As a Pharisee, he was well-versed in the law. But he also had many cultural scruples. And he had, in, in addition to the law, the Pharisees had, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of additional laws that had to be kept in order that you might keep the law. Okay? But it is clear at some point in Paul's life he opened the gate of the garden to Jesus and said, It's yours, Lord. Tell me what stays, tell me what goes, and tell me what's missing. This is what mature Christians must do. Reasons your conscience may change. Your conscience is your conscience of what you believe, consciousness of what you believe is riding along at any given point in time, and it can change for complex reasons. Here are three. Your conscience might become more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Feeding excuses to your conscience is like feeding sleeping pills to a watchdog. Your conscience might follow the standards of other people, such as your culture, family, and spiritual leaders. Or your conscience might conform more to the truth, especially the truth of God's word. Sinning against your conscience versus calibrating your conscience. So the question is, how do you know the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Since, in both cases, you're telling your conscience to be quiet. 
That's a pretty good question. Their answer. You are sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and yet you refuse to listen to it. As Mark Dever, not never, Mark Dever puts it, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. You are calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through his scripture that your conscience has been incorrectly warning you about a particular matter. And so you decide to no longer listen to your conscience in that one matter. And the biblical example is Peter and his association with the Gentiles. You'll all hopefully remember that story. Peter... Uh, is on the rooftop and he, he has a vision and the vision is a sheet that comes down from heaven and it's got all kinds of unclean animals on it and the voice says Peter take up and eat and Peter says Lord no I have never put that stuff in my mouth and I never will the sheet comes, goes up comes back down it says Peter take and eat goes back up comes back down Peter take and eat Okay, And the message to Peter was, things have changed. My kingdom now my, and my word must now go to the Gentiles. And he is immediately, after that vision, invited to go to the house of a Gentile. And I'm pretty darn sure he got for the first time to eat something that he had never put in his mouth before. Okay? All right, so how do you calibrate your conscience? They give two basic principles. Calibrate your conscience by educating it with the truth. When we form conventions about what we believe is right and wrong, we must take into account truth from two spheres. There's the sphere, truth inside the Bible, and truth outside the Bible. This education is not something you do in a vacuum or all alone. God has put you into a community and given you various relationships of accountability, especially to your family if you're young, and to your church. And then you calibrate your conscience with due process. It takes time. This is a wisdom issue. Sometimes it will take a lot of time to work through a particular matter. Okay, so then they give some examples. Uh, and, and they spend quite a bit of time discussing these. I'm going to go ahead and list them, but I think we'll move on to something else. So they, they deal with these. Should you view sexually charged nudity in videos or movies? How far is too far in a dating relationship? Is it okay to use certain forms of reproductive technologies and other forms of genetic engineering, such as gene therapy and stem cell technology? Should I spend a lot of time in sports or other hobbies? And then, so these, there's, basically that is where you add knowledge to your conscience to help you with questions of that. And then they give some examples of subtracting from your conscience. Should you get a tattoo? Is it sinful to use certain instruments in congregational worship? Is it sinful to listen to certain styles of music? Is it sinful to, calibrate, to celebrate Halloween? 
Is it sinful to bite your fingernails? Is it sinful for guys to wear shorts or jeans? And they said, do not roll your eyes at this one. <laughs> he goes on. and they go, I mean, it's a personal experience on the part of one of the writers, authors. Okay, so if you're interested in how they, 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 they take a, whole, a number of pages, six or seven pages to go through these and analyze them. If you're interested in them, well, grab a book from somebody. You can, have, you can borrow mine if you wish, and you can read about it. So why should we not be dogmatic about our conventions, convictions? And they give the example of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who back when he was a young man gave a sermon. Uh, and uh, he uh, basically could not understand why men would wear colorful socks. He could not understand why they were putting baths in bathrooms, you know, he even went so far as to say, if I had the choice of sleeping next to someone who took a bath every night or took, who took a bath once a year, I'd, I'd choose the latter. I just was like, wow. And he, he essentially said the radio was of the devil. And one thing he could guarantee is that they would never hear anything from about the voice from a contraption like that. <laughs> anyway, so they, said, they went on to say, probably later on in life, Martin Lloyd-Jones was pro- probably regretted that that was out there in print. And uh, if it had been on his Instagram account, they definitely would have deleted it. Okay. So uh, sometimes your convictions are based on misinformed conscience that you need to calibrate. We must be, do this careful process of calibration in the context of biblical and theological training in the church. And it does take work. In short, we must also know what freedoms and constraints are ours in Jesus Christ. This is D.A. Carson, by the way. In short, we must also know what freedoms and constraints are ours in Jesus Christ. The only way to achieve this maturity is to think through Scripture again and again, to try to grasp the system of its thought, how the parts cohere and combine to make sense. Okay, so what I'd like to do in the last minute that I have left is I'd like to tie this back to something that we've studied already. Do you all remember this slide? This is a slide in which Horton is advocating for people living ordinary lives in ordinary settings. Or it was, it was from a book about that, I'm sorry. And if you'll recall, he really talked about how, you know, within our society, there's this quest to look for to be the superhero. And the kinds of things that, that, that implied and what you had to do... The quest to be Martin Luther. And I would argue that Martin Luther was over here doing this. He was living his life as an Augustinian monk. He was trying his best 
to figure out how he could stand right before God. And he was preaching it to his congregation. What was it that compelled Martin Luther to do that? A number of things. But I would argue that one of the forces for impacting our world is our conscience. Because our conscience tells us that we have a responsibility. to ourselves, to our neighbor, and in so doing, to the world. We also had this one. This is basically two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of man. And in, this, and in, in, and in the book, basically, it talked about the green belt that's sat between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, which is the Lord's Day, which is right now what we are doing and participate. We have come to the green belt, okay, today, out of the kingdom of man to participate in the kingdom of God together, right? But let's put a little spin on it. It requires the continuous, focused work of reading, studying, and prayerful meditation upon the Word. What I'm arguing is that this is also a metaphor for us calibrating our conscience. To the extent that our conscience is wrong, we're living in a desert. To the extent that we do the hard work of making our conscience right and obeying it, we live in the kingdom of God. It's probably important that we take calibrating our conscience serious. It's a serious matter. Okay. We're done. Oh, next week. Um, next week is going to be how should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree? That'll be next week. Okay, thanks, guys.